0: Good morning. That was one of those. As Pastor Bed was reading, my wife was like, "Whoa!" Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. So's the mic. Um, Jake Palmer, I have your hat. Oh, Jake! Come on, so close. Cool. Um, <laughs> good morning. My name is Scott. Uh, I'm the lead pastor here at Jacobswell. Uh, my privilege be with you. Um, please do stay for the community meal. It's just one of those sweet times that we have to, uh, it, it is what it sounds like. It's just a meal um, and you'll get to sit at tables with people you may know or you may not know, would encourage you to meet someone you've never met before at the meal today. But just a great time and thank you to the many, many, because uh, I can smell it who have brought food. Um, and so this is also one of those times where we get to celebrate the goodness and richness of being a multi-ethnic community, um, which is actually how this meal started, was just the idea of sharing uh, that cultural wonderfulness and distinctiveness and beauty that God um, has spread throughout the nations, uh, which exist among us. And so uh, that's part of why we do this as well. And so really excited about that. Um, I was talking to Mike Freiberger before the gathering. He mentioned that, where did Amy go? Is Amy, you guys are headed out this week, right? This is, this is camp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is Camp Week for Young Lives. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. A couple people will be going. A um, bunch of people will be going. So if you think of that, uh, Young Lives is one of our, our great external partners here. Uh, many of our own who are involved um, with, uh, with teen moms here in the area. And they go to camp. And this is just a really important week. And um, he was explaining your sleeping arrangements. And to pray for that alone. Um, Twelve people with babies in a room together. Um, and so, uh, so, yeah. So pray for Amy as she leads all of that. And, uh, and that God would really show up in a powerful way that week. Um, we are in the series uh, where we are looking at these seven letters at the beginning of the book of Revelation, and there is a lot to cover here today. Um, Jesus says a lot to the church at... Uh, I listened to many in Audio Bible this week, and they all say that it's Thyatira. Say that. Thyatira. I'll say it, then you say it. Thyatira. Right, there you go. Now you know how to say it. Um, so the church at tire. This begins, this very funky book in in the New Testament called Revelation. And Revelation is, as we've been saying week after week, is it's a very specific genre. It's a very specific type of literature. And the type of literature that it is, is called apocalyptic literature. There's been two things that we've been saying that I hope are ground in your mind. I hope some of you are kind of uh, rolling your eyes at this point, like, get past it, Pastor Scott. But I want to keep reminding us there's two things that characterize apocalyptic literature. One is this chart, or or this image, that I hope you're getting um, ingrained in your mind. Which is that the New Testament fundamentally understands the error in which we are living as this surprising overlap between the world in its fallen state, which the scriptures call uh, this present evil age, And there's this overlapping where the kingdom of God, the world as God will one day recreate it to be, has entered in and now overlaps with this present evil age. The way that the New Testament talks about this is the age to come. So you have this present evil age and the age to come begin to overlap really with the coming of Jesus into the world. These are words that he himself said. said. He said, I'm here, I'm among you, therefore the kingdom of God is here. And then with his death and resurrection the realities, the power that will allow this world to be remade is unleashed in the world through Jesus' death and resurrection. And the age to come, in a sense, has broken into this present evil age. And so we live in this overlap. What apocalyptic, specifically what Revelation is, what it's trying to help us to do is to understand the unseen realities that stand behind that dynamic? What does it mean in the spiritual realms? What does it mean from heaven's perspective? What does it mean ultimately beyond what we can see, touch, feel, our own mundane experience of life? What does it mean that the age to come has entered into this present evil age? And so it's trying to wake us up. It's trying to help us. I think that this is how Jalen and I have both put it is it's trying to help us interpret reality through the unseen realities that it's, that it's showing us. In fact, the, the very word apocalyptic is this taking off of the veil. It's taking the veil off of our eyes in order that we might see differently. In order that we might see beyond the merely physical. So that's the first thing it's trying to do. The way that it does it is largely through very provocative images. It uses imagery. That's why Revelation is so wild. That's why you have dragons and beasts and things rising up out of the sea. And all this wildness is because that's what apocalyptic does, much like our modern-day science fiction or superhero movies do. right? Like We don't confuse those for literal reality, but we also realize that they're trying to communicate something to us about reality by using provocative, wild images. And the one other thing that I would add to that second point, that it communicates those unseen realities through this kind of wild imagery, is that often those images are counter images. They're images that are in, they're sort of in conversation with the culture of that time. And they're often critiquing the culture of that time because they're picking up symbols that are familiar to the people who are reading this, and they're doing different things with them than maybe they're used to, than they would have expected. This letter to Thyatira is no different, and we'll see that literally from the first words here. So let's get into the letter itself. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. You should be used to by now, if you've been walking with us in this series, you should be used to, the, Jesus is the one addressing these churches, and he's described at the beginning of each letter by images that come from Revelation 1. We've already heard every single image that's used of Jesus throughout these letters. We've already heard them in Revelation 1. What's interesting is you've got to ask the question, why is this the specific image of Jesus that's picked up, for this specific church. Here we have this idea that Jesus, and and I can't help, I don't know about you, I can't help but think of Superman when I hear, who has eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze. Eyes like a flame of fire is talking about the fact that Jesus, you'll hear this later in the letter, maybe you already heard it if you were listening closely as Obed read, that Jesus is able to see through appearances to the heart. He's able to cut through the noise and to see what's really going on in the human heart. And that as he does that, the reason why his eyes are a flame of fire is that fire throughout Scripture is associated with judgment. This is another image, just like last week in the previous letter. This is an image of Jesus as the judge. Jesus as the one whose evaluation is final whose evaluation is always accurate, whose evaluation is the only one that will ultimately matter because he is the judge. He has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I love this. What this seems to be is is, uh, a biblical image uh, like all of these are, but it's a counter image in the sense of... We kind of sort of still use this phrase. You ever heard anyone say... Don't meet your heroes because they might have feet of, what do they say? Yeah, maybe it's not a super popular phrase. (laughs) You've never heard that? Don't meet your heroes because they might have feet of clay? And what that image, no. Okay, hard no from the youngers among us. I'm going to teach you a phrase today. Don't meet your heroes. It's actually a biblical phrase. It's from a vision that Daniel, and, and a lot of times in Revelation, we're picking up on images from the prophet Daniel. In Daniel, there's this statue, and the statue is made of, of different kinds of things. and The statue seems to represent different kingdoms that are going to come and dominate God's people, and the feet of that statue are clay. The idea being, you, you don't want a huge statue made of all these other things, gold and bronze and all these other things. You don't want feet of clay because right, that thing is going to fall over. That's the point of the image back then. Do you hear the contrast here? It's saying, no, Jesus has feet of burnished bronze. Jesus is firm. Jesus isn't going to be toppled over. Jesus, and 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 in other words, it's sort of like where Jesus stands, there he will stay. He is not swayable. He's not imbalanced. He's not movable. He's never changing. So his judgment, right, in the combination of these two images, his judgment is sure. We can be confident that how he judges is not swayed by anything but his own perfect, holy, righteous, pure evaluation. And so, having established that's who he is. Although, there is one more thing, and you'd have to be a very close reader of these letters to pick it up. There's one more additional thing that's said here in this intro that isn't said anywhere else in the other letters. In all the other letters, Jesus is introduced with images. Here, he's introduced with the additional title of what? Son of God. Good. Yeah, you see it. The words of the Son of God. In, in no other place is, uh, is he introduced this way. Again, you've got to ask the question, why does this church need to be reminded that he's the Son of God? And this is where we get into a little bit of the background of this specific city. Thyatira is interesting among these seven cities. Um, and if you remember, we're in modern-day Turkey, what they would have known as Asia Minor, and we're making kind of a clockwise circle around that area geographically. What's interesting about Thyatira is it is by far the least populous and least significant city of any of these seven cities. Um, It wouldn't have really registered. Like if you were talking about Asia Minor at that time, it wouldn't really register. Like if you think of all the cities around here, like I live in Kendall Park, that probably wouldn't be the one that like jumps out at you, right? You would think of the big cities like New Brunswick and Trenton and Newark, right? Like this, this is a much smaller kind of what we would think of as like a much smaller municipality. What Thyatira is known for, though, is that it's known for, for two things, um, similar to what two weeks ago uh, the church at Smyrna was known for, is this is a city that, that loved it some Roman emperors, like loved the Caesars, were all about it, built temples to them, and specifically was associated with the goddess uh, Venus, um, who, I'm forgetting what Venus was... Famous for? Love and Beauty. There we go. Yeah, there you go. Um, so, so, associated with Venus, and the, the Caesars would have un- understood themselves as sons of, of specifically Venus, sons of that god. And so, the, in these temples, they found in ruins and all that stuff that the Caesars are more regularly called sons of God in, in a place like Thyatira, not just in Thyatira, but in places like that where Caesar's worship was huge. And so this seems to be again a way of subtly um, jabbing—might be too like uh, whatever—violent or oh, word, oh, but but subtly critiquing the culture of that city by saying, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, whoa! You think that this city is dominated and run and ultimately governed by sons of God? No, there there is a true one and only Son of God who is now speaking, and what he speaks is largely a critique and an evaluation—negative evaluation." Negative evaluation Of the worship of that city. This is the Son of God to whom you should listen. Right? We should be getting used to this. The images of Jesus as critiques of the images worshipped in these places. Here's what it says. I always start, there's also this rhythm to each letter, starts with a commendation, then goes to a critique in almost every single case. So here's your commendation of this church. This is what this church did well. I know your works. This is Jesus speaking. The one with eyes of fire he sees through things he knows uh, exactly what's going on he looks past appearances i know your works your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first it's a pretty good list like this church has a lot of good stuff going for it you'd be hard pressed to Pack into, what is that, four or five descriptors, more faithfulness in a church. I know your works. This is a church that that does stuff, that can say, "Look, look at how we love one another. Look at how we love the community around us. They're characterized by love and genuine faith, service. It's a very specific New Testament word for serving others, serving the physical needs of others. For your patient endurance. Another church that's under a lot of pressure, as we'll hear, to give in to the surrounding culture. No, you've patiently endured in so many ways. And then this is the interesting one. And that your latter works exceed the first. What you're doing now, particularly in love and service toward others, is actually greater. It's grown over time. You've grown in this over time. And it's better than what you were doing even in your original zeal as Christians. Again, you've got to be a close reader of this. Does that remind you of anything? Comparing works now versus works when they first became Christians. Anybody remember this? We're meant to be reminded of an earlier letter to the church at Ephesus, who says, I have this among you. This is same chapter, verse 4. I have this among you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, and do the works you did at first. So Ephesus' critique, like, y'all were all about it when you first became Christians. You were doing all the things, you were loving and serving other people, you had all kinds of projects going on in the community, and now you've grown cold. Church at Thyatira, the exact opposite. You guys, you guys have grown over time. You guys have gotten better at this. You guys have gotten more sophisticated in your service. You guys have gotten more generous in your love. You guys have gotten more partnerships in the community to be able to love and serve others. You guys have a great dynamic among yourselves as a church. Verse 20. But I have this against you. Here it comes, right? Commendation and then critique. But I have this against you. That you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. But I have this against you. That you tolerate that woman Jezebel. Who in the world is Jezebel? Alright, seems unlikely, most would agree, that this is a literal woman with the name Jezebel. Though it seems to be a... I'll just say it seems unlikely that it's someone named Jezebel. It almost certainly is a literal woman who who is misleading this group, calling herself a prophetess. By naming her Jezebel, the Jesus here, the, the revelation itself, is hearkening back to a very specific Old Testament figure. And if you've ever heard the name Jezebel sort of thrown around, this is where it comes from. And so I spent some time relearning about Jezebel this week. This was a wild woman. She, okay, so who is Jezebel? Jezebel, you can read about this from 2 Kings uh, chapter 9 in the Old Testament forward. Jezebel was a foreign princess of of a nation not associated with Israel who ends up being the queen of Israel because she marries King Ahab. Let me just read you uh, a little summary of, of Ahab's life. So the kings of Israel, if you know the story of the Old Testament, it didn't go well with the kings of Israel. Like The vast majority of them were not faithful to God. They led Israel astray in various ways. But check out this description. Oh, do I have it? Here we go. This is actually First Kings 16. Sorry, I had the wrong passage. In the 28th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all of the kings of Israel who were before him. Yo. So Ahab, not a good dude, right? Like more than all the kings. Were, like it was a small thing for him to imitate the, son, the sins of the kings who had gone. But it was a small thing right, like weak sauce, what these guys did. What he does is he full-on welcomes into Israel's worship the worship of Baal. Which, again, if you know the Old Testament story, is probably a, sort of a term you've heard about, oh yeah, Baal, that's a bad, that's a bad thing. And he builds these things called Asherah poles, where people would go to, to worship sort of the, the female goddess uh, who was associated with Baal, the goddess of love and romance. Um, <laughs> basically what goes down is that Jezebel brings all of this into their marriage. She's the one, as the story then gets untold, that's not, you know, then there's chapters and chapters that tell the story that that's a summary of. Jezebel comes in, she's like, no, it's cool, like it'll be fine, like we'll do the Baal and Asherah, and we'll worship Yahweh, and basically that's what causes Ahab to do all this evil, and then um, erect you know statues and temples and all of this stuff to these to these false gods to to these uh, these gods who are very counter to to the things of of Israel's God and counter, namely, in this way. And this is where it's like, man, some things uh, some things never change about humanity. So the worship of Baal is fundamentally Baal is the god of nature, and what you would do to worship Baal was you would go to the temple of Baal, and as Jalen put it last week, delicately for young years, you would do wild stuff. Because what, what worship of Baal looked like was because Baal was the god of nature, expressing your natural desires honored Baal. Because if he gave you those desires, then worship was expressing those desires however you chose to have them come out. This is what you would do in the temples. This is what you would do anytime you read about Asherah poles in, in the Old Testament. Asherah is, uh, is that, uh, what is it, the Sidonians, their version of Aphrodite, the god of romantic love. And so you would go to these poles and express your romantic love with another or, or with one of the, uh, the hired people who would do these things for you. That's what we're talking about here. That invades Israel and basically becomes the dominant sort of religious practice in that time. And it's largely because Jezebel convinces Ahab, who then convinces the people, that look, the natural expression of your desires, it's a good thing. If you were given this body and you were given those desires, then the expression of those desires is just the most natural thing in the world. Fast forward... You know, 2022, and we're like, our culture has never been in a moment like this. Where, you know, sexual immorality and the idea that the expression of one's desires, unfettered, is what it means to be truly human. It's like, no, 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 no. We go in cycles. It has different versions of it. But that's that's what we're dealing with here. And that's almost certainly what's going on in the church at Thyatira. Is you have a prophetess, A self-described, as Jesus says here, a self-described prophetess coming to the people and saying, guys, it's no big deal. Because here's what's going on in Thyatira. Let me give you a little bit more background on Thyatira. The thing that it's most known for are, are what's called its trade guilds. This is an old school thing. We don't really do this as much anymore. But a trade guild is sort of like this weird mixture of what we think of as like a modern day union, like a trade union, with a little bit of like, uh, I don't know, like the Lions Club or something, or like the Knights of Columbus, a little bit of country club, a little bit of like a religious small group. It kind of combines all these things. And so there were trade guilds for uh, wool makers, leather makers, potters, bakers, shoemakers, this sounds like some sort of uh, song, Um, and then specifically in Thyatira for bronze workers. Specifically, a very, uh, a very precious and delicate type of bronze that was only made in Thyatira. Back to the intro of Jesus. Remember the feet of bronze? That's the word that's used there. Is that they think that they're doing something spectacular. This is what Jesus' feet are made of. Like, y'all think you're, you're big news because you created that? This is what Jesus stands on, right? Like, very cool. But, back to the trade guilds. So these guilds would be, um, the reason they're called trade guilds is because they're organized around trades, but they were more than that. It wasn't just about, hey, let's get together and share our best leatherworking processes. It was also your community, and it was also the place where whatever gods served your practice were worshipped. So picture, this is how it would go down, and they have tons of evidence of this from archaeological finds. You'd go to like a trade guild dinner, and it would start as sort of a casual thing, and then food would be brought out. And then drink would be brought out. And then the night would go on and on and on. And soon, the night would turn from a casual social get-together in, into this, this worship service, basically. But you can't picture worship service like those of us who grew up in church think of worship service. You have to think of worship service like bail, like a sheriff pole. Right, where that worship very quickly becomes, remember, who's the goddess of this city? It's Venus, the god of romantic love. Same thing is going on here. So apart from just the temptation to be involved in these, what we have to understand and empathize with, Jalen said something last week similar about the church in Pergamum, is it wasn't just the temptation of like, man, that sounds like fun. I should probably go be a part of that. It was that being part of these trade guilds was a matter of survival. Because what these trade guilds also provided was a community of people who set the prices, handled wholesalers, uh, organized the markets on a given week. So now I'm a leather maker. I want to be part of the leather leather making trade guild because I'm going to have access to the best suppliers. I'm going to know all the other leather people. If my business goes down, I can always hop in and, and work for someone else. You can imagine the financial urgency of being part of these things. And so not being part of a trade guild as a tradesperson would have been like, almost every commentary I read this week was like, you're talking about financial suicide. That's the term that they all use. Like, You're talking about, like you are choosing to put yourself at a massive economic disadvantage. You're knowingly choosing that what do you do? What do you do as a Christian? What do you do as a follower of Jesus? Well, maybe you have someone get up on a Sunday and they say, guys, it's a non-negotiable. I know that we all want Christianity to be a both-and religion, right? Like, you can both be a Christian and be part of these trade guilds. But it's not, it's not both-and. You want someone to get up and say, well, no, Christianity, is a, Christianity can hold that tension. You want someone to get up and to say, look, the body's the body. As long as you know in your head and really believe in your heart that Jesus is the true Son of God, that these gods that are being worshipped are no gods at all, as long as you know that, as long as your heart feels that, look, the body is just the body. And okay, you got to do what you got to do. So go do what you got to do. Stay away from it as much as you can. But at the end of the day, God cares about the soul. God cares about your spirit way more than he cares about your physical life. This was very popular in those times. This was the foundation of Greek philosophy. was soul, spiritual, unseen, good. Physical, stuff, flesh, bad. And sometimes we can adopt this as Christians and say, yeah, what God cares about is our souls. He cares about our spirits. Which in the same breath implies he doesn't really care about our bodies as much. Because one day we'll lose these bodies, we'll be disembodied souls in the presence of Jesus forever. That's not true. God created our bodies. Jesus himself took on a body. So if bodies are are by definition bad, what do you do do having the second person of the Trinity in, in a physical earthly body? And by the way, post his resurrection, Jesus kept that body. Do you know that Jesus is embodied right now in the presence of God? He's a person. He's a person with a body. And so to just say, we'll cast these up. No, bodies are good. We are integrated beings. God made all of it. And it's an integrated whole. So we can't split those things apart. You can't split any of life apart. Right? Like This is at an even bigger category. Like What God cares about is that you show up at church on Sunday, you do good stuff, for other people. And then whatever whatever you do in your sort of like work life, that's just a different category. God gets it. He gets how hard it is out there. Right? This is the sacred secular divide. Is go out and do your work. Do what you have to do to provide for your family, to be acceptable in culture, to be received by your peers. God gets it. Just give him your spiritual stuff. Pray at the end of the day. Show up at church. This is what they desperately want to hear. Because <laughs> then you can go and do your thing. Then you can go and compromise. Then you can go and, and, and hold tension as you give yourself to these other things. Guess who's saying that? Guess who's willing to say that and make a case for that? It? It's, it's this prophetess. That's what's going on here. Listen to what it says. I'm way back in First Kings. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. All right, one more thing on this. What he has against them is that they tolerate Jezebel's teaching. They don't, they don't kick her out. They don't say, yeah, no more mic for you. Like, you got to go. Remember the contrast to Ephesus, the first and second works. In that one, what Jesus has against or what Jesus commends in them is, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. I'm back in chapter or verse two. And how you cannot bear, same word, you cannot tolerate those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. Do you hear that? It's the opposite. Okay. You have one church in Ephesus, and some of you really liked this message, and were like, yeah, that's what the church needs to hear. Because in Ephesus, you had a bunch of people who loved truth, loved doctrine, loved theology, knew and would call out anyone whose doctrine was wrong, who were false. But Jesus has a massive issue with them, because he says, you guys lack love. You guys don't love people. You guys are suspicious of each other. You guys are brutal to each other. You're always calling each other out for for little quibbles theologically, let alone the rest of the surrounding culture that you're sticking your finger in their chest constantly and saying, you're getting this right. And, And you don't love anybody. So yeah, you love truth, but you're kind of a jerk. right? And some of us go, yeah, I hope the church hears that. right? This is the opposite. Jesus is saying, you guys are full of love. You guys love each other well. You guys are known for love. You guys have, uh, don't have walls up for the community around you. You're actually interacting with people, loving and serving other people, and it's beautiful and it's good. Same way he says to the church at Ephesus, your love of truth, it's good. It's a good thing. I commend it. I see it. I love it. Same thing to this church on the love side. I love that you're people full of compassion for others. He says, but I have this against you. You tolerate evil right there in your midst. You just let it happen. You let truth fly out the door. Jacob Swell, this is a sobering reminder. This is what hit me this week. We are, I have this uh, friend who, who's, who's done a similar thing, and so we, we talk a lot about these passages, and he said, this passage is such a reminder when you read it with Ephesus That we as a church, we as individuals, and especially we as leaders of this church community, we fight a multi-directional battle for faithfulness. Meaning, one area of getting it right is nothing to rest upon as a follower of Jesus. You can't say, yeah, but I'm really good at this part and not this part. And here we're specifically talking about love and truth. And we are living in a moment where there's a lot of churches that get truth really right and are awful to one another and awful to this world. And are actually known, are known for that. And in some senses are proud of that, that the world hates them. As though that's what Jesus meant when he said, The world will hate you. The world will hate you because you hate it. The words of Jalen that ain't it, fam. Like, that is not what Jesus was talking about. We have churches like that. We also have a lot of churches who are willing to love and serve and welcome others in who have thrown truth out the door. Right? One of the the most influential... I'm going to take a little rest here. One of the most influential prophets of our day you love him, I love him, your kids love him, Lynn manuel Miranda, okay? He got up in an award show, he gave a beautiful speech. I have no idea if he's a man of faith, I'm not evaluating him. But what he did is he said something that I think captures our cultural moment. In the crowd, I forget what award show it was, went nuts when he said it. You know what he said? He said, love, 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 and he kept going, love. And our culture cheers that right? and says, yes, love, the unfettered ability to express your desires, whatever you feel from within, that's what's good. And I get why we want to cheer that. I want to cheer it too. I want a church where other people know that you're welcome here. I want a church that doesn't have a posture of we get everything right and how dare you. But there's a whole other conversation over here that says the only way to show the love of God to this world is to allow this world's definition of love to dominate. To allow the world's definition of unfettered expression of one's desires. And as the church of Jesus Christ, as the ones reading this letter to Thyatira, we have to hear Jesus say, I have this against you. Because what that can lead to is a permissive culture where all sorts of craziness is allowed. And you know what? Your unfettered expression of your desires, it isn't innocent. It will hurt others unless it is bounded in certain ways. And so we can't listen to the voice of false prophets who tell us if only you would love, right? And, and if I could talk a little specifically here, I'm talking to a little bit of a younger crowd because you guys have so much pressure on this one. You have so much pressure to not be like this kind of Christian who claims truth and does it with an attitude of self-righteousness, with an attitude of exclusion. And what you will be tempted to do is say, well, I guess this is my only option. Is to give in to the culture's definition of, of love and not speak truth ever and to bite my tongue because I don't want to be that. And the one with eyes of flaming fire and burnished feet says to you, my evaluation is the only one that matters and I'm telling you truth does matter because people get hurt when this kind of culture flourishes. People walk away from me because they walk into this stuff And yeah, it is really, really, really hard. But He is with you in it. Jesus, the Son of God, the true Son of God, says, I stood in the middle of these things. I cared about truth. I loved others well. The hurting, the lost came to me. The arrogant, the needy, they came to me. Those that... The people of God tend to reject. They went to Jesus because they found grace and mercy and goodness and love and what we'll talk about in, in a second. They found perfect patience in him. And then he didn't just wrap his arms around life as they knew it, he spoke truth to them. But first came mercy and love and goodness and gentleness. Listen to what he says here. Verse 21. That if you don't hear all of the nuance here, you miss who Jesus is. He said, I gave her time. I gave her time. Right? Like when you think about the judgment of Jesus, one of the things you have to think of first is how patient he is with it. He says, she's had ample time. She knows this is not okay. I've given her all kinds of warning. I've sent people to her, I've sent others to try and correct her. She's unwilling, she won't do it. I've given her every opportunity. And he says, and look, and some of you, when he says those who commit adultery with her, that's almost certainly not literally. What he's talking about there is, is this biblical category of adultery as spiritual idolatry. That, that, that the people of God are, are to be the faithful bride of God, but instead we go off and we commit adultery with these other idols. And yeah, a lot of times that idol worship, like we just talked about, turns into sexual immorality, but probably what he's talking about is, any of you who run off and make this compromise, He says, I'm going to throw her onto a sickbed. This is almost certainly, the word sickbed there is really just a regular word bed, but it's getting at an image. It's saying that these feasts, these trade guild feasts, they would go from the dinner table to after a few drinks, after the idol worship started, all of a sudden there would be, there would be these beds out. And what he's saying is, I'm going to send her onto that, but what is a bed of pleasure now will be a bed of her own destruction, is what he's saying. Because here's what judgment always is. This is what Romans 1 and 2 say, the most famous sections about what judgment is, is first and foremost, God is patient. Right? If you have ever wondered, how can it be that I have done this sin and I'm not being immediately punished for it? You have not gotten away with it. That is the wrong way to think of it. Jesus has literally withheld the judgment that that sin deserves in that moment. That should be the image that you get. That's what he's saying here. He's saying, I could have done this long ago, but I wanted to give her opportunities. I wanted to give you opportunities to repent. But here's what happens. Here's what Romans 1 and 2 says. It says when judgment comes, it's not Zeus's thunderbolt thrown at you. It's not that Jesus finally says, I've had it. Go to your room. I've had it. Now you're going to suffer this. The worst thing that can happen to you in your sin is what Romans 1 and 2 says the judgment of God is, which is that he hands you over to the literal language. He hands you over to it. Right? C.S. Lewis said there's two types of people in this world. One of whom says to Jesus, thy will be done. And one of whom that Jesus says to them, thy will be done. Hand it over. Hand it over, in other words, to the natural consequences of this sin. That's the worst thing. Right? It's not a thunderbolt from God. Oh no, uh, I'm, I'm sexually immoral. Maybe my finances will suffer. That's how Jesus could really get me. No, that's petty. That's weird. That's not who God is. That's how Zeus is. That's how the Greek gods are. They're finicky in that way. No, no, Jesus is a righteous judge. And the thing that he does is he goes, I've been, I've been with, withholding all of the natural consequences. I've been pushing them back. I've given you time. But at some point, thy will be done. And he steps aside. That's what happens. That's what, he's, that's what he's saying here. Do you notice the first thing he says? He says, repent. And then he says, this is what's going to happen. And then he says, by the way, unless you repent. In other words, the key note here is not, ooh, be scared of Jesus. It's repent. He's inviting you. It's another opportunity. Right? This letter is another opportunity for her even to repent. The very one. Verse 24, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, that's almost certainly because the prophetess was saying like, no, these are the deeper things of God. This is the real way. I know that the Bible says that. I know what Jesus says, but like we're beyond that. We're actually more enlightened now. We have fresh knowledge. We're modern people. And so this is actually the deeper things of God. Again, 2,000 years ago, y'all. He says, to those who don't hold to this, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. What he's getting at here, this has another biblical reference. In Acts 15, you can look this up. In Acts 15, Gentiles are starting to become Christians, not just Jewish Christians anymore. You have Gentiles coming in. The Gentiles are coming in. The Jewish people kind of have this instinct, we see this all over the writings of Paul, that like, I think since we're all Jewish Christians, you maybe need to become Jewish first. Like maybe you need to do some of, some of the stuff that we've always done. And then you can be like a real Christian. And they come together like, does that sound right to you guys? And, and James and Peter and Paul, they all stand up. They're like, yeah, no, that doesn't sound right. This sounds like a gospel for all people. It isn't just for one ethnicity. So to become one ethnicity, that doesn't seem right. And so they say, well, what should we tell the Gentiles? And this is what they end up saying. Go to, go to the Acts 15 passage, Rachel. For it has seemed good... Th- this is a letter that they send to all the churches who had these questions. They say, For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, this is sort of the, the bishops of that time, they meet in Jerusalem, to not lay on you, to, to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled, there you go, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. You <laughs> know. That's how they said it back then. Um, that's how it sounds in the Greek. Farewell. And um, the reason why I even say that, farewell, is it's a very short letter. It's like, look, here's what we're going to tell the Gentiles. You don't have to become full-on Jewish people. You just got to come out of your life of worship of other things. You don't have to become ethnically what we are. You've just got to change your allegiances from the gods that you used to have to, to the new gods. And that's just basic Christianity. You know, we're, not, we're not laying any other burden on you. So Jesus saying here... To those of you who don't hold this teaching, I don't lay on you any other burden. It isn't him saying, if you don't hold this teaching like you're good to go, there's nothing else for you. He's hearkening back to Acts 15. He's saying, look, you're, you're getting it. And I love that he calls it, I won't lay on you any other burden. He's saying, here's one of the hardest parts about fleeing from this kind of stuff. From compromise, from being with the in crowd, from sexual immorality. Is we can feel like we're the only ones who have ever been asked to give up something like this in order to follow Jesus that our cross is heavier than anyone else's. I think by saying I don't lay any other burden on you, Jesus is saying, no, 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 basic Christianity is cross-bearing. Everybody's giving up something. Do some of you sacrifice more? Yes. Amen. Hallelujah. That's an objective fact. I would affirm that to the hills. But in saying this, what he's saying is, look, these things are nothing more than what I require of each of you. Yeah, it might look different in all of your lives, but you guys are doing it. You guys are doing the thing. And it shouldn't feel like a burden. Because partially what's going on here, right, is that Jesus always calls us into obedience. Quoting last week, exactly, Jesus calls us into obedience for our joy. It's never for our misery. But we always think it's the opposite. We always think, okay, I'm going to say no, and I'm just going to embrace some misery for a while, right? That's no way to motivate. No one motivates that way, right? No, there's joy. He's inviting us into something new. He's saying, this isn't a burden. That I'm like, there's freedom on the other side of this. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works. What's interesting is um, that he includes and keeps my works. Normally it's just to the one who conquers, to him I will give something. But here it's to the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. To him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces even as I myself have received authority from my Father. This is wild. So to the one who does, who remains faithful, Jesus will give them authority to rule the nations. This is something that we think of as being something that Jesus does. right? If you're familiar with the Christian story, you're like, whoa, isn't that something Jesus does? Like, Weird to say, like, I'll let you rule the nations. Kind of wild. What's going on here? <clears throat> What's going on here is that we're hearkening back to one of the most famous psalms that Jesus is always picking up on, Psalm 2. Where, where Here, I'll read it for you. You'll probably catch it. Go to Psalm 2, Rachel. Here's what Psalm 2 says. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. In other words, the world is always opposed to the purposes of God in the world, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, that's God. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage. This is God interacting with the Messiah who's going to come one day, saying, This is the type of relationship that God will have with that one. I'll make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them, sound familiar, with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling, kiss the Son lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kingdom. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. In other words, when God's king comes, you don't want to mess with him. Because he's going to have true authority. And a lot of his authority in the way that he rules and what he asks of his people will be in exact contradiction to what this world calls us to. But Jesus is the one who will one day exert that full authority to the four corners of the earth. The crazy thing in the biblical story is that Jesus, in many ways, in the New Testament in many ways, says that one day that authority that Jesus has will actually be shared with his people. That we will join him in that. That we will be representatives of his who actually rule over this world for its flourishing. Which, by the way, for those of you who are in me and Lizanne's discipleship lab should sound familiar. This is what it means to be made in the image of God. We made in the image of God. I rule on behalf of God in representation of him. This is a way of saying, that's going to happen. That's still going to happen. Even though that went terribly wrong in the garden, that's still going to happen. Why say this after such an unbelievably challenging word? It's saying, look, what ultimately makes faithfulness to Jesus so hard is you have a watching world around you. And you have your own internal desires that are telling you, things contrary to what God would want from you. That makes faithfulness really, really hard. Amen? Right? It's an impossibly hard sometimes. What he's saying here is those who are faithful, though, have hope beyond those realities. That there are actually eyes that are on you that will matter in eternity for tens of thousands of years beyond just this speck of a life that matter infinitely more than the opinion of fellow middle schoolers, than the opinion of your office mates, than the opinion of your community. All of that will be dashed. It will be on the ground. It will be nothing compared to the evaluation of the one with flames of fire with feet of bronze. And oh, by the way, one day you will be so utterly transformed in your inmost being and everything will so come in line with His desires from within you. I long for this day. He will so transform you that He will entrust to you His very authority. You will become one utterly worthy of His trust, such that you can rule with Him. This battle, watching world, what's going on inside of us, do you know it won't last always? It will not last always. There is a day coming When the flames of fire in Jesus' eyes will evaluate you and your heart and what you wanted and your attempts to repent, right? This is also what we hear here. She wasn't willing to repent. Some of you say, I'm so willing to repent, but I'm still going back to that thing. He loves it. Because he sees the heart in that. He sees, I know you're trying. I know you're confessing. I know you're trying to be held accountable. You are willing to repent. We will get there. Maybe not ever perfectly in this life, but one day all of that will be purified. In you. And all of the other nonsense around you that keeps you from my evaluation being full and final in your own life, it'll be quieted forever. It'll be dashed to pieces. And all that you will hear over your life, your fundamental identity will be, well done, good and faithful servant. Do you know what we always leave out of that? Jesus said that at the end of of a parable. Well done, good and faithful servant. That comes from a parable. We always leave out the other part. It says, well done, good and faithful servant. This is a parable of talents. Does anybody know it? Enter the joy of your master. Enter the joy of your master. This life is not always categorized. Faithfulness is not always categorized by the joy of our master. Sometimes instead it feels like the ridicule of this world, the... the the abnegation of our desires, but one day will be the joy of our Master. That's what we long for. That's what our hope is in. Therefore, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Oh no, there's one more thing. Verse 28, I will give him the morning star. What is that about? I don't know. Let's close in prayer. No, I'm kidding. I have some thoughts. Um... (laughs) couple things here. One is uh, the morning star is um, one of the prophecies about Jesus from the Old Testament. We just won't have time to get into it. It's actually a prophecy of Balaam, who was mentioned last week. Um, What seems to be going on here, though, is that uh, the stars were often associated with the Greek gods. And this is just another way of saying, I know that you think that ultimate authority, that the stars themselves belong in the hands of the rulers of this day, Fill in the blank for whoever you, who, whatever audience you feel is most predominant in your life. But no, there's, there's, there's a true and lasting morning star. In fact, Jesus himself is called the morning star. So to be said, I will give you the morning star, is to be told, you get Jesus. You get Jesus in a life of faithfulness. I love this image of the morning star. One of the commentators that I've been really enjoying on, on these letters, his name's Gerald Johnson. I know nothing about him. He says this, though. He says, The morning star usually emerges at that point when the night is as dark as it is going to get. When it appears, there is no sign of the dawn. But when it appears very faint and small at first, you know that the night cannot withstand the dawn. It is just a matter of time until the dawn wipes the night away. The morning star pulls the morning in behind it just as certainly as Jesus pulls the kingdom in behind him. Sometimes repentance comes in the dark of night, the darkest place. But what you get is the morning star, right there in the middle of the night, the guarantee of dawn, the guarantee of a new day, the guarantee that in repentance you get the only one who ultimately matters who will bring that new day, who is the source of that new day. That's our hope. That's our hope. Let's pray.